Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Sean Harding about the new book, The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart, How Science is Opening Up Mysteries of the Heart, Revealing the Poetry in Motion Within the Machine. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. So can you tell us, what do you do? Uh, well, I'm retired now, actually. I've been for about 40 years. I was um, uh, a researcher, a professor at Imperial College. And um, uh, I was I, I basically did research on the heart. Some teaching, obviously, as a university professor, but uh, mainly concentrating on my research group. And how did you get interested in what you do? I could, I was always interested in science, even from very young. Um, I, I remember telling the dinner lady at, at school when I was about nine that I wanted to cut up dead bodies when she asked me what I wanted to do when I got older. Um, uh, and then uh, I came upon pharmacology simply when I was looking through the handbook to go to university. I'd never heard of pharmacology before, but I was immediately struck by the study of drugs and how interesting that, that must be. Uh, so I did my degree and then they asked me if I wanted to do a PhD and, and I really had no idea, you know, this is my parents were both artists about what what you kind of did in academia. So I didn't know what a PhD was and they explained that to me and then I said, yes, that seemed to be the kind of thing I wanted to do. Um, and, and so I did that um, and I was thinking about a, a subject for my PhD at, at the time. And I was in a department, they let me to do to work with who I wanted or and, and do whatever project I wanted, which was great. And um, I was considering and I was very interested in the brain, but I could see the techniques were so crude. Um, uh, that the heart, though, they seemed to be very much more amenable techniques. And also, just at the same time, my, my father-in-law um, was suffering from heart failure. So uh, I, uh, I guess I, my interest was pushed in that direction. And I, and I, I kept going in, in that way ever since. And along your journey, did you have people who were very supportive of you and mentors that really stood out? Um, uh, in fact, uh, I find that a quite a difficult question to answer. As a woman, I didn't really have any any role models. Um, I had some some pleasant bosses, but the, the the main thing that they they did was that I really quite liked was left me alone to do what I wanted, and I was very very happy when uh, that was the case. 
Um, uh, I think my one of my uh, bosses forbade me, in fact, for, for working on cardiomyocytes. Uh, but then he went on sabbatical for a year, so I was uh, completely free to do what I wanted. And by the time he came back, I'd got it working, and so he was—I could persuade him that it was a useful thing to do. And you also met—sorry, <clears throat> you also mentioned that your parents are artists, so you're not really from a scientific family. How did you manage to navigate these kind of situations, especially maybe uh, during the time Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas? <laughs> Well, I have to be careful. I mean, my uh, some of my family, because I always forget, um, uh, being a scientist, that, and I, I describe, you know, uh, in great detail something about a heart that we've taken from a, somebody, and and I, and I have to be careful because some of my my family are a bit squeamish, and I must remember not to do that. But my father, it was his art it was mainly in photography, and um, uh, so uh, in terms of the image analysis, we could have a lot of conversations about you know, optics and lenses and, you know, laser recording things. That, that was uh, that was a good good way of getting into the conversation. And as a mentor yourself, what would you say to our student listeners? Um, uh, so uh, I think it, it would it's a good idea if you can to to do what you're interested in, what you want to do rather than try to chase the money people do tend to go into to fields and more often now people are not choosing their own projects they're they're going into a lab where they're they're given a project and things like that and 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 to be to be as independent as possible as soon as you can to drive the project in the, the direction you want but my first postdoc um my uh, boss wanted me to 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 make antibodies to the beta adrenoceptor and I as a pharmacologist I thought that was a bad idea because we have some extremely selective agonists and antagonists for the beta receptor and so um, I thought we the those pharmacological tools were much more powerful than the antibodies and and indeed in fact so I persuaded him and in um, it turns out that it's been very difficult to make an antibody to beta receptor. Other people have tried it, and I don't think we have a good one even yet. So your latest book is The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart. And how did you come to writing it? Um, uh, I wanted to um, write, I wanted to understand if I could write for a, a non-technical audience. Um I I like writing. I like literature, but and the having done scientific writing for so long, I wasn't sure that I was would be able to uh, to get out of that very sort of constrained uh, sort of technique of writing, where it's more like equations and writing, and to write something that was pleasant and easy to read and engaging and and could explain things so i was i was i was trying to do I, I wanted to try to do that and i was put in touch with um an agent a person who was a publisher and uh, jamie marshall uh, who's a publisher and had just become set up his own agency and um he was very interested in the book and he also was very uh engaged in my writing and helped me to not write like an academic to write a proper sentence without saying the evidence suggests that you know and and those very deadening kind of of constructions you have in, in 
science, the passive voice, and you don't use adjectives and things like that to to really try to convey the the passion I had for my work and the um, uh, the interest uh, to to somebody and tell them all the extremely interesting things that have happened that people really just don't know about uh, in a way that was easy to easier to read. I don't. You'll have to. You know, my readers will have to judge whether I I've, uh, I've succeeded in this. One of the most difficult things, in fact, was writing about the heart, which, of course, is a very uh, it is always emotion. You know, um, uh, it's uh, you know we want. I can't even draw in, in a normal book. You have black and white drawings, and as we as we do here, um, it's hard to, hard to get color plates for for books these days. And so I couldn't even put my my diagrams in color. Mm. Uh, and I couldn't obviously show the motion on on the page uh, in, in the way I'd like. And we haven't. Uh, I described lots of different imaging we've done. We often use these fluorescent tools, which will, for example, flash with a green light every time the cell beats, which shows you how much calcium is in there. Or you can see the electrical activity flowing across the heart because you put in a, an electric a dive that responds to the electrical activity in the heart. And so that, that motion and that colour, all the fluorescent uh, antibodies we use to stain different proteins, so you can have multicoloured cells, all that is, is lost. and You can only describe it on the page. So that's quite a challenge for, for, for to try to convey that to an audience. All right, so let's jump right in. And can you tell us why heart? Why are you so interested in it? Um. Uh, it's it's uh, I, I I went in. It's it's a fascinating. But one thing I have to tell you, as a scientist, it's so immediate. All the things you see are so immediate. When you're doing many scientific experiments, you have to, for example, run gels or something like that, and it'll take you a couple of days. And you you'll, you'll have to wait for something, and then you'll have to wait for a measurement to come out of a machine or a picture to be taken, and then you have to do some analysis of it. It's it's slow stuff. But when you're looking at uh, a piece of heart, a heart on the, which uh, we can perfuse a heart and it can beat on on a on a you have apparatus in front of us, or like I've done, I've isolated the cardiomyocytes, the individual muscle cells from the heart, and um, these are tiny cells. They're they're less than a thickness of a of a human hair, um, and um, you can see them under the microscope in the dish. And you can see them beating. It put you when you put an electrical impulse across, they will all beat in time, like each one like a tiny heart. And they will carry, and you can then do experiments on them. You can put a drug on, for example, like adrenaline, and you can see them speed up and beat more more rapidly within seconds. Um, and then you wash it off and they stop again. And you can do many experiments like that. So it's so immediate, you understand immediately the answer you're getting uh, um so so it's it's great uh, there's a great attraction in just the kind of experiments you do uh, but as i've gone on um uh, I, and this is one thing i i want to convey is uh, just how amazing the heart is um uh it's uh you know you 100,000 beats a day 3 billion beats in your life you miss for 240 of those beats and you're dead um in the, the little cardiomyocytes, these little muscle cells I'm describing to you, um, they they join up all over the, with, with connections to each other 
all over their surface and electrical connections so that when the electrical impulse comes along, it flows uh, so smoothly through the heart that it acts like one giant cell, really. Um, and so that's amazing. It, it really uh, doesn't have much in the way of repair, which is odd. And that's a very odd thing. And that's why we've been investigating this. I mean, your hair grows all the time. Your liver can regenerate. Your skin can heal up. But your heart, it, it was very difficult to find even the, the slightest signal of, of repair. We did find that that probably about 1% of your cardiac muscle cells regenerate in a year. Mm-hmm. And so that, that means that you actually have half of the cells in your heart will last you from the moment you're born to the moment you die when you if you're 80 90 100 half of your heart will will be with you that whole time and so i'm just thinking i look at that little cell in a dish and i'm thinking that one of those one of those little cells is lasting for 100 years that's just that's just so amazing and so i, I that's why the first thing i wanted to convey and i and i know of course I mean, the reason we're, we're always looking at this is because the heart heart disease is the biggest global killer. I just wanted to say it's, it's amazing to me that most of your heart, you know, most people get to the end of their life without having heart disease because it's just so much work for this this thing, this this machine, this exquisite machine, as I call it. So it's so exquisitely finely put together. Um, but nevertheless, we have we are thinking about when it goes wrong. Um, and, and so um, what I'm trying to, to talk about in the book is, you know, the, the kind of things you know that are, are dangers to your heart, like having high blood pressure or having a cholesterol-rich diet or, or lack of exercise or smoking. You know, those things we, we know quite well and, and we know a lot about them. But there are new things we, we, we don't we are only just becoming aware of, like um chemotherapy uh people are surviving after cancer now and um, for quite long times and uh, we kind of always knew that there was some some damage to other organs because there was the, the first drugs were poisons but now it's become very clear that even even with newer drugs that there's a, a toll taken on the heart uh by by chemotherapy and uh, you can be more at risk from the heart effects of uh, the drugs you've had for chemotherapy than a recurrence of the cancer itself at a certain point. Um, so chemotherapy, pollution, uh, you know, that that's, uh, I describe um, a fascinating study because I live in London. Um, uh, and so I live near these places, Oxford Street, which is a well-known shopping street, which is where diesel um, cars go up and down. Uh, and then there's Hyde Park, which is right at the end, which is a lovely big green park, but it's still still quite close. Mm. And they they got some people to uh, walk, uh, take just a two two hour walk, either down Oxford Street or in Hyde Park, or and they're all monitored. They're all monitored for pollution levels and things, so that you could, you could see what, what they were breathing. There were some were cardiac patients, some were people without cardiac disease, and you could see that in the people who walked in the park just for two hours. There was a measurable benefit to their heart health and their blood vessels, and that lasted for a few days, even just that very short, not a ta- taxing walk. Going down Oxford Street, exactly the opposite. There was real damage. Uh, 
even in that short space of time from the pollution from the cars and the, even from the noise pollution. And uh, that uh, was measurable in, in, for, for both lung and heart in, in, in that short time. So pollution really, I think, is, is a bigger um, danger than, than people realise. And then there are a lot of things about hidden heart uh, um, uh, defect, hidden heart mutations or variants of genes. And that, again, is very common. The one, um, one of the ones, there's many different variants that can cause some kind of heart problem. And one of the most common is in about 25% of people who have heart failure. But um, the, the, it's also in about 1% of the population who don't appear to have heart disease. And we've been able to show that, um, that those people who can be healthy all their lives are more susceptible if they have some kind of extra insult to the heart, like chemotherapy, for example. Mm. So, um, so that, and then um, the fi final sort of sort of twist of the knife, in a way, is that the body reacts to all these kind of damage, like having a heart attack. Uh, if the if the heart loses power, then the body tries to stimulate it by various means, and it's reacting like it like it evolved to do, and it's more to do with the, the responses to hemorrhage or injury. That it's it's trying to stimulate your heart. It's trying to to get away from danger. It's trying to stop you uh, losing water. So it's all water retention, and so you get this second syndrome, which is different from a heart attack. A heart attack, obviously, you know the symptoms there. You know you get um, this chest pain, nausea. You know it can be down your arm, the pain. But the heart, the heart failure is quite different, and it um, is more like it's, it's it's consequence of all this water retention, and it's it's like drowning. People say mm. you're very breathless. You all the water is around your lungs, your water is around your gut, so you can't digest things. Your limbs swell, your ankles swell, and all, all the drugs we're using at the moment are sort of concentrated on trying to stop your body making the situation worse for you after you've had that initial damage. Um, and so that's the, the the main part of the book about, the, about heart disease. But then I, I go on to talk about um, the, the, uh, the sort of technologies and the new things that we're doing for, for, for heart uh, disease. Um, all this, this new things. Um, I don't know if you want to ask me another question here, just to break up me talking. Oh, no, absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah. So I was actually wondering here earlier, you mentioned um, about the diseases. Is there such a thing as heart cancer? Maybe cardiomyopathy? Well, that's a very interesting question. So, no, the heart is one of the, the organs that's most resistant to cancer. Very, very rare to get a muscle uh, cancer. Um, uh, you can get some on the blood vessels, angiosarcoma, but even that's quite rare. Uh, and and it's, it's really very interesting that um, it's probably the main thing is because the cells are not dividing much. And so there's it's when you get cell division that, that you're susceptible to cancer. But even, even sort of invasion by, other, by cancers from other organs doesn't appear to be the case. So there's even a, a, a sort of, and this is really not known, but 
perhaps a feeling that the heart is somehow suppressing cancer. Um, so uh, that's that's a really interesting interaction between between those two between between uh, cancer and the heart. So why heart physiology is so peculiar? Because we know that it's a muscle, but it's not the same muscle as in uh, in our arms, for example, or uh, uh, lining our intestinal organs. No, it's um, uh, it's it's very much the same in terms of construction. What's particularly different is the electrical signal. The electrical signal in your arm muscle uh, can be continuous, and so your your muscle can tense right up, and it can stay tense as you lift a heavy weight, for example. In the heart, obviously the muscle has to contract, and and as it contracts, it forces the blood out of its chambers, the ventricles or the atria, and it forces it either around the body or then it goes up for a circuit around the lung from the right side of the heart. So it contracts, but it must relax because it wouldn't be able to fill with blood again. So it has, that relaxation is an extremely important part, and it's controlled by the electrical signals. They have There's a long plateau at a time where the heart can't be re-stimulated. Mm. So when, when you've got the, your skeletal muscle on the arm, it can you, the impulses can add up. But in the heart, there's a time when it just can't be stimulated again, a refractory period in between each beat. Um, and, and actually, uh, there are diseases of the heart that are more to do with the problems that ha the heart has in relaxing rather than the problems the heart has in contracting. Uh, so um, things like diabetes or obesity, uh, just getting older, make your heart stiffer and less able to relax. And this can cause something called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So you, you've got preserved pushing out of the heart, but you can't relax. So this uh, stimulus, those electrical signals, they're also produced by, by some cells. Is that uh, what the pacemakers do as well, if uh, those cells fail? Uh, uh, the pacemakers, so they're, they're specialized cells in your heart. So the, the main muscle of your ventricles, the one that's pushing out, is uh, quiet uh, during uh, when it's not being stimulated. Um, and it has to have an electrical impulse to start it off. And that comes from specialized cells, which exactly as you say, are the pacemakers. And, and in those, there's an unstable electrical potential. So uh, they're always changing. Their electrical potential is always changing. And then it gets to a point where it fires off every second, say, if you're, you're, you're beating hearts beating once a second. And then specialized fibers uh, quickly pull the impulse, that electrical impulse to all the parts of the heart together so that the beating can be synchronized. Mm. So when we look into our evolutionary history, where and when did hearts start? Why did we need it? And so they started about uh, 520 million years ago. And mm. uh, one of the, um, so some uh, animals like uh, insects, for example, they will absorb oxygen because you, you need oxygen for your tissues. You need it for metabolism. If you're going to move around, if you're going to keep warm, like warm-blooded animals, you, get, you need this metabolism, this oxygen burning. And um, uh, when you have small animals, uh, they can just absorb it from, from the surrounding liquid or, or air. Insects have uh, 
sort of like spiracles. I show my regular insects. So that, I think this is what this is right. They have ways of absorbing uh, oxygen without having a heart. But when you get an organized um, uh, and larger uh, animal, then you need some some way to uh, circulate the, uh, the the blood into and get the oxygen into the into inside of the tissues otherwise the further they are from the outside the, the the less oxygen they'll get and so that's how the heart started it's to try and uh, get oxygen into to the deepest part of the tissues and then coming to our own species so how did human humans discover heart that it was important to us there, there was a there, there, there was a lot of um misunderstanding about the heart for most of history really uh they, it was thought for a, for a time to warm the blood it was thought to be the kind of furnace inside the heart um and uh, often often it's the case that people understand uh how why things are happening in the body because they 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 see it happening in a mechanical device or something mm -hmm. and so it was realized when the pumps were being used the idea about pumps uh, um, was was a current and uh, william harvey was able to show by very simple experiments really uh, by you know say getting the uh, your the blood in your arms and uh, blocking a vein and showing that the blood backs up on one side and then when you release it it rushes forward to so showing that there is a flow of blood from uh, that, that circulates recirculates in your body uh, and so by uh, dissecting the heart and by studying animals and by studying humans he was able to show that that was the, the heart was a pump that was circulating your blood Ah, so that was already in about 18th uh, or 19th century, was it? That, that's right. Uh, just a little late earlier than that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so um, it was uh, the 17th, 18th century. And and so it hasn't been very long that, that we've known this. So for most of recorded history, we didn't understand what, what was, was going on with that. And so hence all the... Um, Uh, the sort of stories about the heart and the heart being the seat of emotion. People didn't understand that the brain was was um, the key uh, thing for for emotion. Um, so so there's a sort of been a bit of a, a swing of the pendulum that the the heart was first thought to be the source of all emotion. Then uh, then it all the it was sort of kudos was given to the brain. But now there's a little bit of a swing back where. Mm. Uh, the understanding of the emotion, the the reaction of the heart to emotion, the even the idea that the um, uh, heart uh, you you understand in a way how you're feeling by by at certain places, by uh, by listening to your heart as it were. So, for example, and that's a I must clarify this that it's um, particularly uh, the speeding up of your heart in the fight and flight response so um as i was saying in most most of that that's a good key thing in evolution that uh, you should have you should be able to escape from predators very quickly and so the the surge of adrenaline that speeds up your heart makes it beat harder and makes it beat faster it takes the blood to your muscles takes it away from your gut so and your skin so your skin goes white um and your guts you feel the sort of butterflies in your stomach 
that that's the sympathetic nervous system and it's getting you away from from danger and so that's very important um and so um uh you, it's important for you to react quickly and so for example when you play somebody um a racing heart uh, as you might have when you're very frightened uh, then um, they that amplify that that can even make them feel fear can even make them have an anxiety attack it, it amplifies the, the, your, your fear response and thinking about cultures even um, like ancient Egyptians they revered heart as a seat of your soul rather than the brain didn't they they did. I mean, they, they clearly understood that uh, that the heart was, you know, when your heart stops beating, you're dead. That's how people knew you were dead. Um, so um, I think that was uh, possibly one of the key things. And, and as I say, you can sense your heart. Some people are very, very uh, sensitive to their heartbeats and, and some less so. But even when your heart is pounding, most people can, can understand that quite quickly. So once we kind of understood what heart was there for, or at least some of some of its um, you know, functions, how did we go about studying and uh, even starting to heal it if something goes wrong? Um, uh, so uh, it, it, it took a while to understand what were the main threats to a heart. Um, you know, I talk about the... There was a village, uh, a town really, in, in America called Framingham, which became the first site where people were measured um, and their heart uh, function was measured and they were followed for their whole lives. There was a, so about uh, out of the town, about 10,000, 5,000 people signed up and they were studied very, very closely. And, and we get a lot of what we know from uh, that that time, and it was um, probably about, uh, only uh, sort of in the um, early part of the uh, sort of or early to mid 1900s that was started. Uh, and, but we have a huge amount of data from it. For example, it wasn't understood your blood pressure was an important part. Um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had blood pressure of some incredible amount, something like 300 uh, mm. systolic uh, when he di when he died. It was uh, smoking, that was another thing. Um, uh, fatty diet uh, was, was another thing that came out of this. Um, so um, the difference between men and women in terms of the kind of heart diseases they get, what happened in, in, in um, coronary artery disease, all of those things came from, from those kind of studies uh, fairly recently. So there's those kind of what you might call uh, population or epidemiological studies. And then the studies that um, we, we've done, uh, uh, cardiac scientists like me have done, where you take the heart um, from uh, human heart. We, we go to the operating theatres when there's a heart transplant, for example, um, and I will get the heart that's being taken out, the old sort of poorly functioning heart to, to study. Uh, we can take biopsies uh, of, of tissue uh, from the heart uh, to study in the laboratory um, and uh, when, during surgery, for example, there are some things that are naturally removed by the surgeon and we can stand in the operating theatre and, and get those. And I say we, we can we can use to animal studies mm. and much more recently we've been able to use stem cells to, to which we turn into cardiomyocytes to do those studies. Uh, so we, we've 
we know a lot about the uh, the electrical activity, how that's controlled, how mutations affect all those things, how that that activity is translated into the force of contraction of, of the heart or of of the cells. We can we we really know a lot about this. Uh, we know a lot about how um, it's controlled by. The, the system I told you, the sympathetic nervous system, and and its its partner, the parasympathetic nervous system, which calms your heart down, but also how this interacts with the central nervous system and interacts with your emotions and and and, and things like that. So, uh, and we the imaging uh, modalities have become more and more sophisticated over the years. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you mentioned this um, uh, sort of relationship between uh, CNS, the central nervous system, and heart. And uh, you write about something that's called broken heart syndrome. Now, is this real? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it certainly is very real. It's statistically very real. Mm. Um, it's, for example, you're you're much more likely uh, to die the, the just after your partner has died. Uh, than uh, at any time that year, and 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 uh, you know, so the the risk is very high just afterwards and starts to drop over about six months, and and you very commonly have this. I'm often asked to go on on the radio or something or TV talking about somebody who died very soon after a, a loved one. There was a recent shooting in, in America where the husband died after learning that his wife had been shot. Uh, Carrie uh, Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Um, um, uh, she died. Uh, Debbie Reynolds died just after her daughter died, um, and that is a, a well-known phenomenon. Um, uh, it's it's um, uh, it's it. What it, it, again? We're coming back to adrenaline here. In fact, uh, and what we're looking at uh, with um, with much of this is the same kind of effect that you for bereavement that you would get with with many other emotional stresses or physical stresses so it's often seen in um uh, after natural disasters uh in earthquakes or tsunamis um not you, you people you'll get a lot of spike of, of heart disease um even um arguments uh very strong emotional stress uh shoveling snow is one um, characteristic thing where people are very unfit who shovel snow or take up squash that, that, that can happen to them and mm. it's because adrenaline uh, the, the key thing is again to the evolutionary thing that adrenaline is very good at getting your, you out of a sticky situation stimulating your heart very strongly but if it's retained for too long as as with as i was talking about earlier after your heart's injured then it injures it further what it can do if you have a big rush of adrenaline is to produce an arrhythmia, a rhythm disturbance. Uh, and um, uh, the, the rhythm disturbance is uh, what they call um, a ventricular fibrillation. And this is a very severe disturbance of rhythm. The, if they say when you look at the heart, it looks like a bag of worms. It's wriggling rather than beating. Mm. And so it's not pushing out any blood. And if that happens, if, if you start, your heart goes into ventricular fibrillation and you're not, you don't get to a defibrillator, um, one of the machines, in four minutes, then, uh, or some cardiac, so, so uh, CPR can also keep you going for a little while. 
then you you will die. Uh, so that's you, people just drop to the to the ground unconscious. Very very rapid uh, effect. And so adrenaline uh, has that effect. Now, of course, in evolutionary time, it is quite it's not very very common. But in evolutionary time, I, I guess it was that it was a kind of a trade off. A few people might die of of this when you had this big adrenaline surge. But many more would be saved because they'd have got away from the saber-toothed tiger. So it's a bit of a trade-off in, in evolutionary terms. So it's it's a very real thing, and, it, and as I say, it's related to adrenaline. But um, it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. In the book, I describe that there are two uh, kind of syndromes. One is this sudden cardiac death, basically. Uh, where you have uh, this this extreme emotional physical stimulus, and then you have a, a fibrillation, and then you drop uh, unconscious. Um, and and uh, interestingly, this is more seen in men than women. About eighty percent of people who that happens to are men. There's another one that's called also called broken heart syndrome, or or in this case. Takatsubu syndrome is another name for it. Uh, and that this is a disease that very largely affects postmenopausal women. Some men too, uh, but about 80% of the sufferers uh, are going to be postmenopausal women. Mm. And in this case, what happens is the woman or the person who's who's got this goes into hospital saying, I think I'm having a heart attack. They've got all the symptoms of a heart attack, chest pain, sweatiness, nausea. When you look on the um, electrical activity, they look as if they're having a heart attack. But when the doctor comes to image the person, um, they find that their coronary blood vessels are not blocked up. They, they're not really having a heart attack. But what's happening is the part of their heart is kind of paralyzed. And it's often the uh, the sort of bottom of the heart, the, the top of the heart is the, which is called the base, confusingly, um, is beating very fast and hard, and the bottom is almost not moving at all. And when you look at this with a particular kind of imaging, it looks like um, an opt a pot, so a pot with a narrow neck. And the, the, it was first seen in Japan, um, and uh, they called it Takatsuki because it looked like an octopus pot, the pot they used to trap octopuses in. Anyway, so in this, there is a mortality. About 5% of the people who come in with this will die from this. But, um, so, but if you don't die, you recover at least uh, reasonably well, quite quickly as the adrenaline wears off. And so it can, people can recover in days or weeks. Mm. And, and probably before we had this imaging, people were coming in saying, I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack, then recovering. And people thought, well, obviously you weren't having a heart attack and they just went home. Um, uh, but uh, so so this is this is a, a different thing. Um, so this was, this was a, a very interesting thing that we studied, just understand what was happening here. Uh, we managed to make a model of this. We we had some rats. Uh, we obviously you can't stress rats. You can't make the, give them a strong emotional stress or a strong physical stress because that's really not kind. That's cruel. So what we had to do was anaesthetize them, and we we injected them with adrenaline. Uh, 
And the, the amount of adrenaline we used was about the same as you'd use for an EpiPen. Uh, because we know that EpiPens that you use, you know, for anaphylaxis uh, to when people have allergies and they have a, an EpiPen, and that's adrenaline. And we know that that itself, in some cases, has caused this Takotsubo syndrome. Um, and so we used, we scaled it down, obviously, to rat-sized EpiPens, and uh, did that. And we could we could re reproduce the the whole syndrome of this sort of paralysis of the, of the heart with um, the with the right dose of uh, of adrenaline, just underneath the dose that would cause these these arrhythmias. Uh, um, so that was that was interesting because we proved that adrenaline alone was was important enough. This was important for the, the thing that was what was causing it. And then we worked out over some years the, the mechanism by which this was happening uh, in terms of all the molecular pathways that was, was happening there. And we worked out a way to block it. And so we had the, the, the rats on the table and we uh, put in the, uh, the blockers uh, at the same time as the adrenaline. And it did block the Takotsuba there. They didn't get the paralysis. But what happened was some of them then got the sudden cardiac death. Mm. So that's really interesting. So obviously that's not a good thing to do to people. Don't give them these blockers. Um, uh, and so what we think is that the Takotsubu, which most people recover from, is kind of a, 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 an alternative to sudden cardiac death, that we've got pathways coming in to protect the heart by shutting it down for a little while so it doesn't get these arrhythmias. And so it's it's a problem for a little while, but then the people recover. And so we think this is a protective pathway that adrenaline switches from its um, normal stimulatory pathway to a kind of cardiodepressant but protective part of, set of, of molecular pathways. And so this is very interesting, uh, I think, because um, it's showing that, that the, the, the body has evolved some way of protecting itself from this very strong adrenaline stimulus. Oh, wow. So the Takotsubo syndrome is now treatable? Um, well, it's the, 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 it's treatable in the sense that you you know what not to do. That, mm. you, that, um, that that what you need to do and what is done is um, is to protect. Is to just well, don't. It, it's, it's the first do no harm. So there were various things that people were doing that were making it worse, like giving people adrenaline, which you mm. do if your heart's paralyzed. So don't give people adrenaline. Don't give people drugs that have a similar action to adrenaline, which some of the drugs do. There's one drug they use to test the heart's uh, capacity to exercise, dibutamine, that has the same effect as adrenaline, and that was causing or making worse the Takotsubu. Um, so don't do anything like that. Just support the heart um, and, and try and let it try and let the, the adrenaline drop and, and the heart recover from uh, that, uh, that, that stimulus. There are some drugs that um, we found that would stimulate the heart and, and prevent that failure without uh, uh, causing an arrhythmia, but, and, and they're but they're, it's been very difficult to do a proper clinical trial because you've got somebody coming in in an emergency situation and it's hard to, say to them you know when they're 
you know, your, your life and death situation. Do you want to be in a clinical trial now? Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit difficult to, to do that kind of testing. But uh, certainly we know what know very well what not to do for Takotsubo syndrome. So what new developments in the field really excite you? Um, uh, so, yes, uh, I, I'm talking talk about um, a lot about the successes and failures. And there, there, there's, there's uh, what I say, there's two sides to every coin. Um, so the... the um, I talk a bit about the trying to build an artificial heart and how that has proved almost impossible. We don't have one off the shelf now. Uh, when we started to try and build one when there was a um, kind of the, there was a moonshot in the 1960s. They were trying to there was a, the uh, ambition to get to the moon. There was also at the same time the ambition to have an artificial heart was put in as a kind of you know, medical moonshot. And obviously you see what's happened with the, the moonshot. It is we've got to the moon, we've, we've sent things to Mars, we've got an interstellar space, uh, space station. Um, we've got many things. We, we don't have an off-the-shelf mechanical heart. But what we do have are things that are, are like offshoots of those. For so example, controlling the rhythm with pacemakers has become very sophisticated with very small devices, devices that can be monitored from outside, devices that can be controlled from outside your body, uh, implantable cardio defibrillators that when they see your heart is going to go into a dangerous rhythm will shock, uh, you, you know, you've got a defibrillator in your chest. Um, partial artificial re- heart replacements where uh, you the like left ventricular assist devices, where this takes the blood from the heart, uh, the, the sort of uh, point, the, the the apex of the heart, the the end of the heart, and pushes it in uh, to the body separately from the heartbeat, and so that doesn't replace the left ventricle; it just helps the left ventricle. And that has been successful. So we have the these these kind of things. We've also um, uh, been uh, trying to develop the uh, biological um, uh, replacement heart, and so this is extremely exciting area with pluripotent stem cells. Um, uh, so uh, I, I guess you you uh, know about embryonic stem cells. You've heard of, of, of those. Yeah, you can remind uh, our audience as well. <laughs> so um, the uh, so the the uh, embryonic stem cells were some cells uh, discovered in uh, just at the turn of the the, the uh, 1998 2000 um, and they um, are in the in the developing embryo, there's a small ball of cells that will go on to develop all the organs in your body. And studying those they, in a dish, they could see that they turned into all the different cell types in your body if you gave them the right cues. Uh, and we knew what, what those were because they're the kind of things, compounds in the blood that are around during development of the heart. So it pushes the cells become heart cells. Now, uh, there, there was an idea to use those to repair the heart, um, but uh, people uh, 
uh, were very worried about the fact that you destroyed an embryo to make these or to obtain these cells. So this was difficult for to, for the research to progress. But, but somebody who, uh, Shinya Yamanaka, uh, uh, in um, 19, uh, uh, so yes, um, uh, about won the New York Nobel Prize in 2012, um, uh, for the discovery or of induced pluripotent stem cells. So what he did was he understood how to take something like an ordinary skin cell or an ordinary blood cell, put in factors that had been discovered in the embryonic stem cells, and kind of turn back the clock on these cells so they became like embryonic stem cells. He kind of wiped out all their programming. And then you could do exactly the same things with that had been found out for the embryonic stem cells, and you could make all different tissues. And so we started to to use these cells. Um, they uh, we could we could um, make them into first small numbers of of cardiac cells, and then people all over the world were working on this to to try and get the methods of producing cardiac cells better and better. And now they're very robust. We can use very reliable uh, sort of tech compounds uh, to do this. We can produce extremely pure preparations. We can produce billions of cells at a time. We can make them uh, by just by um, putting them into a kind of gel. Uh, we can make them into pieces of heart tissue. They all join up. And they beat spontaneously, and you in the lab I can create something, you know, the size of my thumb, uh, a, a, like a, a look. It looks like a sticking plaster, but it's all made of heart cells, and it beats away. And and it, you, you're only really limited by the amount of money you have as to how many, how much of this you can make. It's just extremely robust, and so obviously that's a, a that's a, a real advance. Also. Because I've you've taken it from a specific person, say I say you had heart disease, I could take some of your skin cells and make this. Um, I, I could then at least theoretically transplant that back into you, and it should be immuno immunologically matched. Uh, so for heart transplants, uh, we have to give immunosuppressive drugs because the heart comes from one person and goes into a, a person that's completely different genetically speaking. Where uh, even if they're slightly, they do some tissue typing and there's some matches, they're never completely matched. So you have to suppress the immune system, which of course makes people very vulnerable to infections. With this, you wouldn't have to do that. They would be immunologically matched. Uh, the tissue we could make, and and so they, they, that should be a much better thing. We can also use, interestingly, we can also use this tissue to to test your heart without testing your heart without, because uh, we can take them, make the, that into your heart cell, into cells. And if you have a mutation in your heart, then it comes out and in the behavior of the cells. So we can see arrhythmia, rhythmic disturbances, uh, or poor contraction, and we can understand what's what's happening in your heart without taking a biopsy of it. So that's that's uh, another very interesting spin-off for this. But so what we have now is these patches of cells or amounts of cells, which we can um, uh, put into the heart, and maybe we we were thinking even of combining that with some of the 
uh, electrical pacing uh, machines that we have. So, so a kind of a cyborg type of, of construct. So this immunity issues, um, it also kind of touches on the hearts that we would like to perhaps transplant from animals. Uh, it's not really compatible, is it? That's right. And there was a recent um, uh, study, uh, a recent patient of effect, actually, of, of a patient being implanted with a pig heart. People have been working on pig hearts for many years to try and uh, make them compatible with human. There are two types of or a number of types of, of immune uh, rejection. One is a hyperacute rejection, where if you take uh, uh, an animal heart and transplant it into a person, it will be rejected instantly, practically, and go black and, and uh, die really extraordinarily quickly. And so they they worked on that, uh, and, and they had prevented that from happening. What they haven't prevented is this kind of longer-term rejection that you might get and which you'll need immunosuppressive drugs for. And they did do that. The person died, uh, unfortunately. They did live for two months. Uh, they, they died uh, after that, and... and it's. I, I'm not sure we completely understood what's happened, but the, uh, the one of the suggestions is that it, there was a virus, a pig virus that they um, that they contracted because uh, there are viruses that hide in your DNA that you you can't really get rid of. You can't clear from the pig heart before mm. we um, uh, before you you transplant it. So these xenoviruses have always been a, 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 a something we've always worried about. And it could be that that was one of the reasons that the patient died. And so um, uh, that the immunity is, is a, a very strong uh, problem for, for this kind of, this kind of uh, heart uh, transplantation idea. It's truly fascinating developments. <laughs> So now thinking more on, on the, the global scale, so and reflecting a little bit on us as society, what do we need to do to really put across uh, people's minds that we need to take care of our hearts, and how how do we do how do you achieve it on the global scale? Um, uh, so the the um, uh, we have the very good we have had very good public health um, initiatives, and so the stopping the smoking. Uh, the uh, yeah, people understand, understanding of that they should have controlling their lipids, controlling their blood pressure. We have very good screening things for those. And all I would say to people is, is certainly take care of your lifestyle. But also, if you do have high blood pressure, which many people do get with age, and it's very hard not to, um, uh, you do have high cholesterol, keep taking the tablets, keep taking the tablets. So uh, the, 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 some of the drugs we have developed are, are, are very good indeed. And, so, and the treatment for, for acute treatment for heart attacks has also become very rapid, very, very pinned down exactly what you should do. So, so there, there's that. So um, people should take advantage of all the, the knowledge that, that there is and, and all the things that there are to help them. But then things like um, pollution and uh, things like that, I think uh, that needs work on a, a global scale. And it does feed into a lot of what we're trying to do with climate change and things like that. So we have some of the same things going on there. Um, can I just ask you to ask me something? Yeah, sure. Uh, what I wanted what I wanted to say after the um, uh, particularly as a point for the heart, 
this it, it, the point for the book is how difficult the heart is to treat because it is so good mm. and and so just after we get to stem cell and, and the artificial heart bit uh, could you could you ask me what do you think are the biggest barriers to us uh, you know using all this new technology yeah of course so why is it so difficult to treat heart well um one of the things, and this is one of the reasons I called it the exquisite machine, uh, the book, is because the heart is so perfect in itself that many of the things we do either can't mimic it, like the artificial heart just cannot mimic that engineering, or disturb the, the, the heart itself. So, for example, I talked about the uh, stem cells that we can make into beating heart tissue. But what happens if we inject the cells into the heart is that because they're very young, because they've got their beating by themselves and they're not the same as the adult heart, they disrupt the perfect connections that there are between all the, the, the ordinary heart cells, the heart that are there already. They, they, they disturb those. And what you get is, at least at the, the beginning, very strong disturbances of the rhythm of the heart. When they integrate after a couple of months, then it's fine. But uh, the you know that couple of months having these bad rhythm disturbances is going to be a big big barrier. Also, when we tried to stimulate the very small amount of regeneration that was in the heart, we had exactly the same problem. That as soon as we started to stimulate a lot of heart cells to regenerate at once because they had to break down uh, and uh, divide and then build themselves up again to become like like adult mature cells there was a time they're not contributing to the the beating of the heart and they're they've got a different electrical conduction and so when too many of those cells are doing that at one time then the heart also has rhythm disturbances so anytime we try to do something that the heart doesn't normally do as I used to, we, we we come up against the fact that it's just perfectly designed that we're just too clumsy to, mm. to really uh, do it it sounds like a very delicate system. Can we inject yeah. uh, those uh, a little older cells that you grow in your dishes? Uh, of course, the, the the problem is so we can mature the cells as they uh, in the dishes, and we try to do that, and we we put them on bendy rods so they're exercising, and they do over really quite long times. So you have to keep them. We can keep them for years, you know, months, years, and and they're beating away. So. Um, uh, we we can we can do that to an extent, but as they become like adult cells, mm. you lose this fantastic uh, sort of energy and plasticity of, of them, and so they tend they they will then tend to die like the adult cells do where, when when you take them out of the heart. So it, it's a very it, it's that's what we've got to get. That's a trick is to get them when they're still nice and vigorous. They can still join up with all the other cells, but when they're adult enough to contribute and contribute immediately and perfectly to the beating of the heart. This is why we're trying to make patches rather than injecting them into the heart. So like, so we can put them on the surface and, and, and um, uh, sort of let, get them to interact in a much more controlled way with the heart. And what discoveries in your research for your book, This Exquisite Machine, surprised you the most? Um, uh, I, I think uh, the, the so the the, <laughs> the most amazing thing to me is still the the pluripotent stem cells that we can make. Uh, you know, it took me so long to 
get the cells out of the heart and I knew that they died so quickly to get these cells that now live for months and years, as I say, and are so like those cells. Uh, and just by um, just in a few weeks in a dish uh, has always been uh, so uh, amazing to me. Um, that's that's the uh, the uh, the incredible thing. I think the most sort of uh, going forward. The thing that's the most exciting at the moment is the idea about gene editing. I gave you, uh, gave in the book, a little taste of what we try to do with gene therapy, and how the heart again resisted the the having the gene therapy. It's kind of uh, it, it's like it's uh, you know resisting all efforts to to change it. It knows it's the right thing, and and it doesn't want it to be changed. Mm -hmm. But the idea that we could edit out some of the gene mutations that are causing us to have heart disease, this is very exciting. The British Heart Foundation, which funds enormous amount of research in, in the UK, um, they fund £100 million worth of research every year. Uh, they um, have now given £30 million to something called the Big Beat Challenge, where they're trying to understand ways to gene, change the genes in the heart of, of, of living people. I think that's the most exciting thing going on going forward. So have you ever seen human heart alive or have you have you touched it? Oh, yes, <laughs> of course. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, so I'm standing in the operating theatre and, and basically um, uh, we get handed the heart. So if you put it, uh, it's put in a dish and, and if you watch it, it's out of the body now. The patient is in the, they're lying there without a heart in their chest, being supported by machines. The heart is on the sink, and you can see it beating away. Um, and uh, so then we can, what we will do is, uh, you know, it's obviously the heart they don't want. We can perfuse it. Uh, we can put um, a cold solution down its vessels to stop it from beating and to stop it from using up all its energy and keep it cold. Take it back to the lab, put it on. Um, uh, some tubing, uh, basically we could attach some tubing to the aorta and we run the solution backwards through the aorta, so it, which makes it flood through the muscle of the heart. And then you're sitting there this, with this sort of dead thing there lying there. Then suddenly, boom, boom, hmm. it'll start to beat again. So it's, you know, it's now 10 miles away from the person it was in. And there it is beating on, on this apparatus. And something that you mentioned earlier that you exercise yourselves. Now I'm imagining uh, the whole, all of your lab is just filled of exercise machines for those little cells. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. There's <laughs> little bendy, little bendy rods. They, 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 we exercise them. Yeah, absolutely. And they get stronger. You can measure them getting stronger by the day. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> incredible image. <laughs> so what's next for you? What's going to be your next project? Well, um, so I said, I've retired from uh, from the. I don't have a laboratory anymore, which is sad. But you know, I've got to hand over to the young people. You know, we've got to, to then do that. And um, I, I'm just thinking about other kinds of books. Um, I'm I'm interested in uh, uh, the 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 sort of leading from the adrenaline side to the brain and to to that um, interaction of emotions. I'm 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 thinking about another book around that, but more con concentrating on brain activity there. And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? 
Um, so um, I, I'm still uh, on the Imperial College website. Uh, so you'll still find my page on the Imperial College website. And then, then my it will have my papers, uh, the, the many papers I've published over the years there. Uh, so that's a good, good way. And um, the, for the book itself, uh, it's on uh, all good book in in booksellers, I hope <laughs> by now. And um, it's also on uh, sort of online. You'll find it online uh, or booksellers websites and Amazon things like that. So um, uh, hopefully that that won't be too difficult to find. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. that. Very, very pleasure talking to you.